to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, yeah, I'm going uh, I'm going well. When's Emily back? I'm not complaining, but like, you know, just we've not heard from her for a while. I think she's back next week. I think today, the day we're recording, was the end of her Edinburgh show. I mm. think she performed her final show uh, the final, final performance of Dear Wendy, her show that she's been performing up there for the last sort of three weeks or so. And it seems to have gone swimmingly based on uh, the reviews that I've seen online. Yeah. And I think, would you, if you had done a month, because like, a lot of people are just now starting to wrap up their, their runs and stuff, like a whole month of shows. And it's not just performing, it's like doing stuff and going to see other stuff as well. I mm. mean, that's got to be quite a uh, recovery period you'd have to enter into. Yeah, I would probably just cocoon up for the better part of a week mm. and not want to talk <laughs> to people very much, having uh, had to kind of go on stage and perform, you know, an hour or so of material every night. And then I presume also, you know, hobnob with other performers and go and see their shows. Like, it's got to be a pretty gruelling experience. Mm. I went to the Fringe for a week and, yeah, that was that was hard work. I mean, mm. I mean, just drinking that much anyway, and <laughs> just seeing like the weird thing of like going to see stand up at like eight thirty in the morning, and just yeah. trying to squeeze as much as you possibly can and eke every last uh, bit of culture. Maybe you'll want to come back and do something terribly uncultured for a bit, possibly. Mm. That kind of reminds me of the first year. I think of my first year at uni. I went to Fuzzival. Mm-hmm. which was the day-long festival that they used to do at the university in conjunction with uh, Fuzz Club, the kind of indie slash heavy metal night. And it was a full day of bands performing, and it was really cool. I believe that year it was Death Mode 1979 were one of the headliners. And it was just a full day of bands playing and drinking. And I tell you, it's, it's not great to be that drunk at like 10 a.m., <laughs> No, <laughs> which you just what well, you just kind of think. Oh man, there's bands playing. You got a pre-game, then you're gonna wander down and just. I just remember having to go back to my hall of residence to sleep for like two hours at like three in the afternoon and kind of drunkenly stumbling up up a hill and thinking, oh, this is not the right time to be doing this. And it mm. was a very very draining experience. So I imagine like Edinburgh is just that for thirty days in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with, yeah, probably maybe a little bit of kind of woefully misguided student drama in the middle. Because you never know what you're mm. going to go and see at the Fringe. I've seen so I, I think I went and I saw like two really good things. And in the middle, we had like some two hours to kill or something. So you just go to that. There's a hut in the middle of Edinburgh and like it's just got the, the, the brochures there. And you just pick a show and you just go and see it. Every, if you get into the Edinburgh Festival, you get reviewed in this thing. And it just kind of sounded all right. And we went to see it and it was like... Henrik Ibsen play, but like like performed by you know nineteen year olds. <laughs> oh, it was so poor, and there was like more people on stage than there was was in the crowd. But you know that's what you mm. go for. You go for those kind of things, those kind of experiences. Have I ever on this show talked about the time I was the only person in attendant at a band, a friend's band's performance? Um, possibly. It sounds like they, something this, we would have talked about. 
Yeah, this was this was many many years ago at this point, but I was out with friends for another friend's birthday, and it happened to be on the same night that my friend's band was going to be playing a gig around the corner. And I was like, oh, I'll pop out for ten minutes and say hi to them, and then I'll leave. You know, after they do a couple of songs, but it was a gig they'd announced at the last minute, and it was in like a new venue that no one really knew very well so i showed up and i was it was literally me in the audience they played an entire set just to me and the wait staff and i couldn't leave because it's a hundred percent walkout at that point mm. um so i was i was there for like 30 40 minutes and had to kind of like rush back and figure out what bar the rest of my friends had gone to in the time that i had said i was going to be back and it was it was it was it was fun, you know, it was kind of nice hanging out with those guys afterwards after they'd performed their set. And they, you know, took it in good stride, thinking, Yeah, this we kind of brought this on ourselves and at least you're here. Because <laughs> if it wasn't if if I wasn't there, there would be no one there. But it was, yeah, a really it's a really weird experience where everyone's been like, I guess we have been paid to perform and I cannot leave. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just kind of go through this. Mm, fair play to the band for going through with it because I don't think I yeah. think I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah, like that. I think that was totally would have been the option if I hadn't been there. Maybe I should have left because then they could have been like, well, the the thing, the worst thing was like pretty much as soon as they finished, I think about ten or twelve people came in. <laughs> it's like, well, we've done our set now, so uh, I guess we're just gonna go. Mm. It was very unfortunate for everyone. Yeah, because they've got to go through the whole kind of thank you. Uh, mm. This is a new song. <laughs> Um, it just seems sarcastic when you know when there's one person stood there (laughs) exactly did you clap I did clap yes Uh, and did they say thank you they did yeah they did say thanks Ed for coming out (laughs) yeah brilliant (laughs) so we'll go on to the news for this week and there was some kind of big stories that came out over the last couple of days that I think have largely been buried by some of the stuff we're going to be talking about on our main subject, but uh, there were a couple of stories that were that were quite surprising. I think none more so, uh, maybe, than the fact that we're getting a fourth Matrix movie. Well, I say surprising, like, it's been kind of hinted at for a little while. I want to say Chad Stalewski, who is the guy who directs the John Wick movies and who is who was Keanu Reeves' stuntman, talked about a hypothetical of what it would take for a fourth matrix movie to be made and he seemed to basically be talking about it in vague terms but also terms that were a little too specific to be just kind of like you know in an imaginary world like you're saying oh yeah like it'd be keanu would be back and carrie would be back and uh lana wachowski would be writing it and directing it and then that all ended up coming to pass so maybe it wasn't the most surprising news in the world but it certainly seemed like something that might not happen just because the matrix has a very complicated legacy at this point in terms of how people uh, remember it and and there's always that question of well would anyone actually want to see another matrix movie but it was confirmed this week that it's happening and 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 I personally am uh pretty excited about it to be honest because I really love the first matrix movie I'll go to bat for the second one, all of its flaws. I think it's a very interesting movie. And I'm a big fan of the work that the Wachowskis have done since. Not all of it has kind of worked for me, but I do think that they are incredibly interesting filmmakers. And it would, it you know, we talked about this when they closed their offices recently, that it was, it would be a shame if they never got to make something on a 
big scale again after something like Jupiter Ascending not not connecting with audiences. And also it's just kind of nice seeing Keanu Reeves after the Wachowskis had, you know, given him this iconic role in the 90s that really kind of resurrected his career after a few kind of moribund years to kind of turn around now that he's got a little bit of heat from the John Wick movies to do do a favour for, for Lana Wachowski. Mm. I'm less enthusiastic than you um, <laughs> because the first movie's good. I will grant you that. Um, the second movie is not so good. And the third movie is awful. Um, yeah, I don't have much good to say about the third one. Yeah, but my biggest thing is like, I don't really know what story there is to tell. I'm all for the Wachowskis and Keanu Reeves doing something, but does it have to be a Matrix 4? Like, do we need more Matrix? The the problems that they have in 3 and 2 is they try to paint this kind of grand mythology, which just isn't very interesting because we've seen it all before in every other bit of kind of tech noir fiction since fucking Neuromancer. Mm. That's the problem. Yeah, I think the the biggest problem with the second and third ones is like, that they are Matrix movies. Like, it's a case of going, well, the first one was a massive success and we maybe didn't entirely have an idea of what we wanted to do next. But we do have all of these disparate ideas of about technology and Gnosticism that all kind of get rolled into the Matrix because the Matrix obviously was a hugely successful thing and anything with Matrix on it is going to get attention. And I kind of feel like that may be something similar is happening here. Like, they maybe have some interesting ideas for a story they want to tell but at this point probably the best way for them to get those ideas on screen is to say oh it's the fourth matrix movie mm, yeah i am kind of yeah I'm, I'm less enthused it seems like one of those things where oh it's been 20 years people mm. liked it oh people really liked it i didn't realize how much people liked it because they're going on about it and banging on about it so well let's just do another one i have the same kind of feeling about it, even though kind of Bill and Ted is really fun and like, you know, those movies are great that I can't really see a reason for another film other than making a kind of nostalgia trip, um, mm. which again, probably will be fun. It probably will be enjoyable, but it doesn't need to exist um, other than kind of that old fan service thing. Or Keanu Reeves again, just being like, Hey, I've got, you know, three, a fairly successful trilogy of movies under my belt, a fourth one's coming out in a, a year or two. Why don't I just, you know, help the people who helped me along the way? Mm. Which is very much in keeping with his personality as just a thoroughly decent man. <laughs> but yeah, again, it maybe isn't the the best use of his time, maybe. Mm. But, but I'm 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 excited for both of those movies again, because there's a nostalgia thing to it and I do feel like the people involved are good. Like the the third Bill and Ted is being directed by by uh, what's the name, Dean Parasot, who directed Galaxy Quest, mm, okay. and uh, he's kind of a good, solid comedy director who hasn't worked a huge amount in recent years. Not in films, anyway. I think he's one of those guys who kind of struggled in cinema and just largely worked in television uh, since then. Um, but yeah, like the 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 people involved with both the Bill and Ted uh, sequel and the Matrix sequel made me think it'd be really, ho- hopefully, like something interesting will come of that. Mm hopefully well yeah yeah there's always hope um i think that he should uh just get a wriggle on and do his little buddha soft reboot 
Mm. Uh, it's about time. Yeah. Is Bernardo Bertolucci's dead? Is he's died, isn't he? Bernardo Bertolucci. Yes, yeah. he died, died a few years ago. There you go. Maybe that one's off the table then. <laughs> yeah, we, he was still trying to get the Dreamers two off the <laughs> ground. <laughs> it's like that. Um, was it Harrison Ford after he did Force Awakens? I think they announced I'm going to do when it was like Blade Runner, and then he was yeah. Going, so I'm going to do a one like a victory lap with all my famous characters. I'd like to see someone do that with like. Just characters that weren't beloved at all, like David Spade, <laughs> like spending, you know, two years bringing all these kind of like awful characters. He had cameos in dreadful Adam Sandler movies, mm. just doing it. But yeah, it, I mean, if it's often a accusation thrown at Hollywood that there's a dearth of original ideas, but that's what gets people excited when you say, mm. oh, "Do you remember that thing you liked?" That again. Yeah, and occasionally you do get something like Mad Max Fury Road, where it's kind of like a, a a filmmaker has been has had ideas kind of like percolating for a long time mm. and because they happen to be associated with a specific franchise that has that cachet they're able to go okay well i'm just going to put all of those ideas into this and it's marketable because it's a familiar thing and that's what i would i would hope to happen with the fourth matrix that lana wachowski would use it as an opportunity to do something kind of bold and exciting and original similar to what she has done in you know some of her uh, other work uh, more recently like you know sense eight mm-hmm. in other news in terms of sequels that maybe people weren't wildly clamoring for it was announced this week kind of clumsily that we're getting a sequel to breaking bad called uh, el camino mm. and it was clumsily announced twice. Once uh, when Bob Odenkirk, seemingly unprovoked, said that it had been filmed um, in an interview for something else. He just, you know, in, I presume his kind of like conversational, slightly brash Chicago voice was just being kind of like, yeah, they filmed it. It's it's all done. Mm. And it's all been done in secret. And it's like, cool. I bet everyone there was like, cool. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> That's just what we needed. Uh, and then a day or so later, uh, someone at Netflix apparently accidentally put up the page for El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, <laughs> with for about 10 minutes and then took it down, at which point they kind of had to release the teaser trailer, which was the character of Skinny Pete talking to investigators, being like, I don't know where he is, you'll never catch Jesse Pinkman or whatever. So it's it's kind of weird that that's how they've announced this follow-up to one of the like, most critically... Uh, adored TV shows of the last decade and it's also it's it's weird because it's kind of answering a question no one was really asking because I don't think a huge number of people were like what happened to Jesse Pinkman after he kind of drove away from the neo-Nazis who kept him trapped in a basement but apparently they've decided to answer that question that they themselves have posed mm, yeah and it I remember them saying, or they were, and I think it was announced, or whether it was actually officially confirmed that they were going to do something with the characters again, mm. um, quite a while ago. But I think everyone just forgot about it, and then for it yeah. just to kind of pop up. I mean, I do like that when they kind of, you don't, no one knows it's been done, and then two weeks later it's out. Um, yeah, Soderbergh it. Yep, Soderbergh it. Uh, Cloverfield paradox it. Or maybe oh, what it. if it's a Cloverfield? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's always surprise. that problem. Like skinny Pete turns into that monster. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, I liked Breaking Bad. I'm not mm. sure I need more of it. Uh, it seemed mm. a fairly uh, open and shut thing. 
there are other characters in Breaking Bad who would have potentially interesting stories. Um, perhaps the character of Saul Goodman uh, would be an interesting person to follow throughout a few seasons of television. Um, at least four. At least four. So, yeah, I mean, but whether Jesse Pinkman's story, I think that when he drives away, you know, the feeling of relief is palpable mm. on the journey that you've taken with him through that show. Um, I don't want to see him get into more scrapes now. I just want him to live happy and make little wooden boxes. Um, mm. And, you know, but the fact that there is going to be, a, you know, the film, this, the film isn't going to be a kind of like on Golden Pond style story <laughs> of his retirement. There will have to be some kind of like antagonism of Pinkman. And I feel like he's suffered enough. I feel like he should be left yeah. alone. Yeah, that's the thing as well with the the finale of the, the show ending with him kind of like driving off and just having gone through this incredibly awful uh, experience. You know, the, the mystery of like, oh, what happens to his next? It, what happens to him next is what makes him kind of like screaming as he's driving away so powerful. Because mm. it's like, you know, the the the, ro- the road is open for Jesse Pinkman now. And, you know, he's obviously committed terrible crimes and would probably be wanted by the law. But that kind of doesn't matter at that moment because the whole thing is his sense of freedom and escape. And, yeah, it, it does feel as if, even if the movie ends up being good and, you know, it's written and directed by Vince Gilligan, who's done a really good job, again, answering a question no one was really asking with the Better Call Saul uh, spin-off series which is uh, I think is absolutely wonderful and great and definitely stems from a you know a question no one was asking of what how did Saul end up like he <laughs> end up like we saw him in the show what happens to him afterwards you know and those weren't necessarily imperative questions but he's done a very good job of spinning that out and making a hugely compelling tv show out of it so the film yeah hopefully could be good but even if it is good it does kind of foreclose that sense of of mystery and uncertainty which i think can make for a good ending something that leaves you kind of the opportunity to imagine what happens to the character once the cameras stop rolling Mm, yeah and sometimes it's better to just imagine it than to see it yes um because this is what i feel with a lot of things that are proposed like these kind of like reboots or sequels to long forgotten things if it's not going to add anything hmm don't do it because yeah. it's, it's only going to take away like I feel like Toy Story 4 really tread that line. It just didn't take enough away for it to like justify its existence. So like it got away with it. But like if it's not going to add anything, just don't do it. Just stop. Just stop yourselves. Yeah. I should be the arbiter of this like, across <laughs> all of Hollywood. In fact, all of art. Fuck it. I'll do it. I'm free on Tuesday. Just send me a list of your projects and I'll just, uh, I'll green or red light them. You're a, a one-man haze code. <laughs> but instead of it being about, you know, censoring it for taste and decency, it's kind of like, does anyone need to hear this? Mm, yeah, yeah. Who ordered this? No one. It's off the slate. I'm sorry. Yeah, and it is It is kind of very rare that you end up with something like a, a Fury Road or a Blade Runner 2049 where it really does deepen or explore kind of ideas from the original that either were only slightly explored or weren't explored at all, where it really feels as if, oh, this is a thing that continues the world but does something new and interesting with it mm. and reflects the, the the genuine passage of time and how things within the world of the movie have changed and how you know the broader culture has changed and our understanding about different different subjects. And, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to... 
find a story that really warrants that continuation. Mm. But you know, you gotta you gotta be open minded about it. And again, like with the Matrix, the people involved are all people I like and who I think have done really good work. So there's always the possibility and a bit you know, a decent chance that it's gonna be good. It's just not necessarily the story that uh, I was the most interested in hearing. Mm, yeah. I was certainly more interested in hearing about uh, Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston's tequila line, whatever it was they were selling, where they were uh, hinting at it on Twitter and everyone was like, oh, is it a Breaking Bad movie? It's like, no, we're selling drinks together. It's like, oh, okay. That was that was kind of more interesting than how the rollout of this movie happened. Did did that happen? Did they Were they hawking tequila? They were, yeah. There was like this weird thing where they were both posting the same things at the same time and, you know, with these kind of like cryptic clues and it was stuff like a picture of a donkey and like a picture of a, you know, a savannah similar to what you would find in Mexico or New Mexico. And everyone was like, oh, what's this? Is this new Breaking Bad? And then it was like, we are launching a... It was either a tequila or a whiskey <laughs> company together. And I think everyone was like a little bit disappointed, but certainly the mystery and the sense of like... What is this? Was uh, kind of compelling. Hmm. Yeah, that was a that must have been a weird marketing meeting. And our final story before we go on to our main subject, although it certainly relates to our main subject, is the news that Spider Man is out of the MCU. Uh, it was announced this week to much consternation online and in my office because after you you sent me the the link to the news story as it was developing. Uh, in the short version WhatsApp group, mm-hmm. and I looked at it, and then you know I was, I was reading up on it, and then I went and got my uh, I went to go and get a drink, and I walked past no less than three separate groups of people discussing the fact that uh, Sony and Disney have ended their or they had failed to reach an agreement on continuing the relationship they had that kept Spider Man both in the Spider-Man movies that are being produced by Sony, Homecoming and Far From Home being the the two that have been made so far. Live action, I should say, like obviously Spider-Verse is an entirely separate thing and also allowed him to appear in the Marvel movies that are produced by Disney, largely because up until this point, Disney had been getting a 5% cut of the money that those movies made because they allowed characters from the MCU to show up in the movies most notably tony stark who's all over the first of those movies uh captain america uh pepper Potts also shows up at the end or uh, much to gwyneth paltrow's <laughs> gwyneth paltrow's uh bafflement in recent months mm, we remember it even if she doesn't so obviously they kind of got the clout of being associated with those movies but disney not having that much creative control over what those movies entailed uh, it was very much sony driving the boat on that and at the same time uh, Sony who owned the rights to Spider-Man going back to the the 90s when they started working on the what eventually ended up being the Raimi movies allowed Spider-Man to be in the MCU and it was kind of very mutually beneficial but Disney started with a 5% cut and they wanted to renegotiate for a 50% cut and probably a greater financial and creative involvement in it uh, Sony didn't want that so Disney walked away and uh, seemingly have tried to, you know, kind of gin up uh, fan anger over this in order to maybe pressure Sony into going back to the table. But, you know, whether or not that works uh, remains to be seen. But, yeah, it's certainly... For something that is tied in with, like, a lot of fairly 
boring contractual disputes about intellectual property. Uh, it has generated a lot of uh, a lot more discussion online than you would have expected. Hmm. Do you think it was one of them ones where Sony were like fifteen percent? That sounds reasonable, and they were like, "Oh no, mm. five yeah. zero. Um That that seems unreasonable. But then it is Disney. I don't yeah. really know what they were expecting. It seems like a shame, and I say a shame because you know Disney have got other things that they yeah. can make money from. They'll be okay. They don't need to own everything. No, they don't need to own everything. And there was a weird thing going around social media that kind of pointed out that had Disney themselves not um, enacted some really kind of strict intellectual property laws back in the kind of 40s and 50s to keep their characters theirs in in perpetuity. Is that the word? Yeah, basically um, the laws on, you know, when things enter the public domain have been extended quite considerably over the years uh it used to be i think it used to be like 50 years after the work was first copyrighted and then it was changed to 50 years after the creator died or something and now and now it's just something that you can just keep Mm. renewing essentially because uh mickey mouse should have been public domain since the 70s or the the 80s and and as you were about to say spider-man would have been in public domain starting january of this year (laughs) yep because it would have been 50 years since the first he first appeared and was first copyrighted. Superman would have been public domain since the 80s. Um, so also like uh, DC and Warner Brothers are part of this as well. It's not just Disney, but obviously Disney were a big part of it. Mm. Um, yeah, so if it, if it weren't for them, they could make as many Spider-Man movies as they liked. Mm, yeah. It is a shame because I, you know, I did enjoy tom holland and and spider-man in the mcu um uh, i i liked homecoming i thought it was a very good movie and and tom holland in infinity war was good very good Mm -hmm. part of it i liked it but you know i'm they've got dozens of other superheroes that they will i'm sure make every bit as memorable um Mm -hmm. in their next 150 superhero movies so ultimately it's a it's it's not even bittersweet it's like it's just uh, okay yeah, it's just like yeah, sometimes things don't work out. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but it's that's how I feel about it. Really interesting, and this will kind of lead us into our main topic: how so many fans were pretty earnestly suggesting the solution of Disney just buying Sony, and mm-hmm. that is the point of entitlement that we have reached. That yeah. you can demand one company buy another one to basically create a monopoly, but also put thousands of people out of jobs which inevitably would happen um if 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 they took over sony and just because you want the thing you want the way you want it which is pretty nuts yeah and i did see lots of as you know as happens you know whenever like like a creator dies and people have to feel compelled to do cartoons of you know all of their heroes mourning them or whatever and weirdly always jay and silent bob always standing by the gravestone and crying Mm. but uh people were doing some of those some of those came across my twitter feed this week of like spider-man being drawn as like a child being dragged away by its carer or whatever away from all the other marvel characters who are getting to play together i was only thinking this has gone too far (laughs) people's identification with their uh the the the, uh, the, the popular culture that they like and uh, like you say the sense of entitlement of thinking oh you know they should do everything they can to 
ensure that Spider-Man is in the MCU, even though the effects of what it would take for that to happen in terms of, you know, if, if Sony were to buy it would be uh, cataclysmic, mm. I think, for a lot of people and for the film industry in general. Uh, yeah, it would not be good. Like I said, this leads on to our main topic, which is Disney very broadly, I guess, in terms of, uh, it, it, you know, kind of connecting into their place in culture in 2019 and also in relation to the fact that D23, their big fan convention, has happened uh, this past weekend and they announced a lot of the projects that they are going to be pursuing in the the years ahead, including their streaming service Disney Plus and what that means for you know their attempts to eat into the Netflix market and their attempts to continue the Star Wars franchises as a Star Wars franchise and their various Marvel series in you know on on streaming television and yeah so we just wanted to talk about it because Disney we talk about them a lot because they they make a lot of news and they are a very dominant thing in in film and TV culture right now so we thought we would do a whole episode about where they've come from how we've reached this point where they own a huge percentage of the american film and television industry and you know what the future holds for them mm, yeah it's a, it's a funny time to be a film fan or mm. to be a fan of properties shall we say so if you were into superhero movies or you were into star wars or you were into kind of pixar like there's never been a better time to be one of those fans right You've got more in just volume. Yeah, in terms of volume, in terms of like some of the people that are being attracted to work on these things. But what did it cost in the kind of to bring it full circle and kind of bring the Thanos quote into it? What did it cost you? And it and it's basically just not good for for mm. culture. <laughs> and it's not like not good for one specific aspect of the culture or like for one specific company. It's just not good for for like the lack of competition is something that that Hollywood has dealt with before. We had a landmark ruling in the fifties about you know breaking up the the big studios' monopoly on 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 uh, production, distribution, and exhibition and film films. Because in the olden days, and most of you film students will know that it was a vertically integrated system. The the, the studios owned the actors, they owned the, the the production facilities, they owned the distribution facilities, and they owned the theaters. You would that's why there were like fifty cinemas in each town, even in England. Like you know, there was a a, a theater for each company, and they would make their films, they would distribute their films, and they would show their films, and that's how you did it. But that was bad because no one else could get a look in, so they. Broke that up. It was a racket. They broke it up in the 50s called the Paramount Decree. And mm. it was a ruling by the Monopolies Commission, I guess, would have done it. Is that right? Yeah, it was the, the federal government. And by, I think, I'm pretty sure it, was the, it ended up at the Supreme Court mm. that they, they ended up making the decision that said, no, you need to divide this up. And that was, uh, a, you know, a, a irritant to mm. the massive corporations that existed at the time that were running all of these things, but ended up being a boon in terms of, you know, independent filmmaking in america certainly like you really couldn't have the sort of small to mid-budget production companies that exist now that you know under the previous system and you certainly couldn't have independent theater chains Mm, yeah and it was no coincidence that perhaps the most uh creative period of american cinema followed 10 years after the paramount decree was was kind of enacted um, mm. All these people taking chances, and then yeah, the kind of big boom in independent cinema, which you know is is kind of still happening now. But we're kind of we seem to be kind of going back to 
all of that being absorbed into to essentially one or two big companies. And then when those one or two big companies get bought by the biggest fish in town, it starts to become pretty worrying. So, you know, obviously Pixar always operated under the umbrella of Disney because Disney distributed their films. But Pixar were an independent studio and then Disney just bought them straight away. They've got their Marvel, a dominant cultural force. Disney buys that. Okay, that's quite a lot of the share of kind of like the summer stuff. And then obviously Lucasfilm goes up for sale. That gets bought. And then all of a sudden you're in the situation where it's not unfeasible to go to the cinema and for most of your options to be something that is inevitably owned by Disney, by one company. And that is unhealthy. And if you're, you're lucky enough to go to a cinema that has options, then what it's competing against, because Disney has the buying power, is that they can fill the screens. You know, you can go and see The Lion King and Aladdin um, on four or five screens each in a modestly-sized cinema. And yes, there might be an independent British film or something that runs in that cinema, but that'll be gone in a week because mm, it'll just be crowded yeah. out. And that is kind of how big companies work. They make it and stack it high and sell it. And that's what we're going to get. We're getting a lot of products. And the D23 thing was cool. And I was just kind of saying to Ed before uh, we went on air that it's really exciting because when the the announcements are coming from D23, I was like, oh, cool. I like this filmmaker. I like these actors. I like these characters. I like these properties. This is really interesting. They're giving me lots of stuff. And it's just like, ah, this is a lot of stuff. This is that, that mm. the, the amount of stuff that got announced at D23. Yes. Granted, some of it isn't going to come out for a few years, but holy shit, that is a, a deluge of content. And granted a lot of it's on their own streaming platform, but they are going to clog up cinemas for a long time. And I, I, I kind of was on a, a couple of like forums and stuff and people were like, Oh man, I've, I've, you know, this seems like such a really good deal. It's only seventy dollars a year or whatever for for, for mm. Disney Plus, and I'm like, oh man, you're not going to own any of this, like, dude, like, yeah, like, just think like how Disney, who like anyone who grew up with Disney, would Disney were the worst people for deleting their things, right? They would release VHS or something of the Little Mermaid and be out for a year and delete it, and you can't buy it. And they do it so like a year, a couple of years later, they'll do a deluxe version of it. And then when DVD came out, there was like the Platinum series, the Diamond series, and they would just bring them out and delete them, delete them. Now they've got you to the point where you're happy about paying for it and you don't even get to have it. Mm. Yeah, and also they still have... It's even easier for them now to gate that stuff and to take it out because all they have to do is like flick a switch and it's like, okay, you, you can't watch Sleeping Beauty anymore. Mm. It's not like before yeah, it, was, it was a little of bit of effort for them to send someone out to get all of the copies of sleeping beauty from shops mm. or uh you know like there was a and then always there was a resell uh, option of your people trading them in online or back in the days of video stores you know you'd be able to go and pick them up secondhand you know before they all vanished whereas this there is real once you have everything that you own being put uh, you, by nice you, I mean obviously as a corporation, when a corporation owns all this stuff and is only available digitally for a tre- streaming service, you know they can completely control the spigot at that point. They just need to turn it and say, okay, you don't have this stuff anymore, which has been the case in for streaming for years and years. And why the oh you have access to everything now idea has 
kind of been something of a lie over the last mm. couple of years because you don't have access to anything. You have access to what corporations say you can see mm. and then and also what they are willing to kind of pay the rights to. And as, as you see with something like the much publicised deals that Hulu made for Seinfeld streaming rights or that, that Netflix made for friends recently where they paid like what was it like a hundred million dollars or something to have it for another two years that's very much you know it, it is all contingent on what corporations are willing to pay for or that they're just willing to put up because also the thing with disney plus that's interesting is that they have fairly that they have explicitly said that it's only going to be pg-13 stuff so, which makes sense in the sense that, you know, Disney, even though they have through different subcategories, uh, sub-labels like Touchstone and Miramax, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction, remember, was uh, technically a Disney movie. They have always, you know, kind of put out more adult orientated fare. The Disney brand itself is associated with kids entertainment and family entertainment so it would make sense if you were making a streaming service called disney plus that it would be aimed at you know kind of a broad audience but does that mean for example that the straight story is going to be on disney plus Mm. like maybe not and you know that film's not the easiest film to find despite being a, a wonderful movie by a great american filmmaker and you know there's that question of like what stuff would they put on their service if it doesn't fit into their brand um their more adult orientated stuff will be on hulu apparently because they now own a controlling stake in hulu but again there's the question of like what of those movies will be on there you know is it going to be a complete archive of everything they own from touchstone and miramax and from all the fox stuff they own or is it going to be you know kind of like curated but not in the nice movie filmstruck r.i.p criterion collection sort of way but in the sense of like uh we're only going to put up the stuff that makes us look good you know mm. is it gonna is, is it going to be a complete archive of everything that they own probably not and so that that's kind of one of the worrying things about them going this route of having a streaming service that is very much geared to advancing a certain brand identity as opposed to necessarily being a complete chronicle of everything they have made and owned, which is also borne out in the fact that like, you know, Song of the South isn't going to be on Disney Plus. And there's advantages to that because that is a very problematic movie, but it is also something that Disney made. It is a part of their history. It's a very important part that needs to be contextualised. And also, it's a very boring movie, so that's another reason not to put it on there. But, you know, them not putting it in there or removing the crows from Dumbo, which I think is also something they've said they're going to do. Um, it is re- rewriting history in a way that uh, is is not terribly helpful in terms of, you know, preservation of cinematic, cinematic history. Hmm. And it, yeah... It- to just clarify something we kind of might have hinted at earlier, Disney Plus did say over D23 that new content, new ah. streaming service would not be cycled. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when, you know, The Mandalorian comes out, it will be it's on. It's going to stay on. It will stay on. 
but they did not at all suggest that, that would be the case for the other stuff because yeah. um, not all of the MCU movies will be available straight away. I think the Star Wars movies will be, I think, from the off, but like, there's not any word about things like uh, the Indiana Jones movies. I didn't hear about mm. those because they're obviously Lucasfilm. So yeah, but also and Paramount owns has a stake in that as well, which God is probably a problem. Damn it, Paramount. <sighs> yeah, it's it's an interesting one because. For all the fanfare and all the the cool projects that are being announced, and there's a lot of them, mm. there is that horrible lurking suspicion that it's just pumping out content that is just like when they said to, to kind of obviously they released new Star Wars movies, and I like Star Wars, that's great. And then they were like, actually, we're not sure about this. We we thought we were going to do like a Skywalker one every other year, and then a Star Wars stories every one every year, but actually. It's not really good for Star Wars. Let's take a break and release and take a while to release uh, the next films. And that's great. And they said that, but they're now filling that gap with three television shows, mm. three live action television shows and two animated shows. What's the third one? Obviously we have the Mandalorian and Obi-Wan. Uh, the Cassian Andor oh, uh, that's right. film. Yeah. So like it's, I mean, that's a lot of content. And if you ask me, would I be interested in a Cassian Andor like show? I'd be like, yes. But like, there's, I don't know, is there a limit to these things? <laughs> like, is can we have too much? Mm, it does feel as if they are recreating in a much more time-consuming and expensive way what ended up happening with the expanded universe mm. books, where the Thrawn trilogy very successful. Uh, you know, like it was the first new Star Wars stuff for quite a while first new star wars stories then you know they're putting out a couple of books a year you had like uh, shadow of the empire this big multimedia thing that was fairly successful and then fast forward like five years you need to read 75 books to understand how chewbacca dies mm -hmm. and it's like at a certain point that stuff becomes uh untenable and is uh you know uh, even to me who at the time was like a adolescent Star Wars obsessive there was a certain point it was like yeah I don't really need to read the third series of Rogue Squadron books when I could uh, be reading some of Terry Brooks's Shannara books you know I moved on <laughs> to, mm. to less popular things but it, it it does feel as if that's the risk they run of having like okay and this is this is kind of true as well for the Marvel stuff as well of like they're saying like oh the the, the TV shows are going to feed into the movies and the movies are going to feed into the TV shows. It's kind of like, at some point, people are not going to care that much about following all of that stuff, particularly, like, if you're six seasons deep into WandaVision and someone's only really familiar with the movies and stuff in the movies starts not really making that much sense, are they going to go and watch every episode of that? Maybe not. Mm. You know, like that's that's the risk you run of having everything be too intertwined. And that was kind of one of the problems that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. ran into on television was like the show for its first season, maybe the first two seasons, was kind of waiting around for events in the movies to reach a certain point in a certain plot revelation that the show could actually kind of do its own thing. Mm. And then after which it just was kind of separate from the movies and didn't really connect too much. Um, and I feel like that's, that's kind of a problem of having those things connected up too tightly mm. that maybe creatively it's better if 
that stuff's kind of a little looser. And, and maybe something like One Division, which seems to be taking some odder choices in terms of being, you know, being described as a sitcom with Catherine Hahn as a nosy, as a nosy neighbour. <laughs> maybe sounds seems like they're trying to blaze their own path. Mm. Plus also the advantage to the Star Wars stuff, I guess, is they are playing in the past. They mm. They can just... They've got these kind of gaps in in between the films that happened that they can just tell their own story that that doesn't particularly wait. They're not like waiting for like in Angels of Shield to Marvel the next film to tell that part of the story. They're that's yeah. kind of it's all it's all kind of prequely stuff, I guess. But yeah, it was quite telling this week that uh, anyone who kind of is on Twitter, I'd recommend you follow Pablo Hidalgo, is the head of the the Lucasfilm story group, and you know, wind back five years, and his job was happily answering kind of silly fan questions about the eu um mm. not the european union the expanded universe um and you know he would kind of joyfully and kind of very knowledgeably kind of answer them and take the time and then obviously since the last jedi came out he spends a lot of his time dealing with angry children mm. and it seems quite an exhausting job um and also being the target of their ire because they think he's in charge of everything which is not true but anyway i digress he they, they one of the things they announced for the Star Wars movies and stuff was they put up a new timeline of like where all the the films and and the TV shows kind of take place to give people a sense of what it was and obviously because it's Star Wars and it's the internet people were quibbling and they were like well how come this overlaps with this and you know kind of saying that things couldn't possibly happen in this time frame and what did the little units at the bottom mean did that mean one year or one decade or what and kind of at the end of this long thread. Pablo Hidalgo said, I, I can't wait to get out of this 66-year period of history between <laughs> uh, The Phantom Menace and, you know, the rise of Skywalker because it's a little congested. And, yeah. you know, they want to kind of move out of it and kind of, you know, because like, like say, you kind of mentioned about the old expanded universe. There's so many books and comics now which are all considered quote-unquote canon uh, mm. and part of it. And, like, you know, when the the rise of Skywalker trailer first came out and the Emperor Palpatine's laugh was on there. Um, everyone was like, Oh God, I can't believe they're bringing him back. And then those of us who have read the aftermath trilogy were like, Hmm, well, it's pretty obvious they were going to bring him back. Cause that's what they're hinting at for three books. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's, I don't want it to get to the point where it's exhausting and you have to have read or played or done these certain things in order to access what should just be enjoyment. Mm, or, the thing in Solo with Darth Maul showing up was kind of another example yeah. where for people who are familiar with Clone Wars or Resistance? It's a Clone Wars, Rebels? Clone Wars and Rebels. He's, he is revived in Clone Wars and mm. his arc ends in Rebels. Right, yeah. Like you and, and other people who are familiar with that were like, oh yeah, like he's been around for a while. But a lot of people, myself included, who weren't aware of that, you know, when that happened in the movie were just kind of, baffled by it just like I what think, yeah and unfortunately that's just like one scene in a movie that ended up not being seen by that many people but um by star wars standards it still made 200 million dollars mm-hmm. in the u.s but yeah that's the risk you run is like what if you make a movie where suddenly 30 percent of the scenes feel like that mm. and that's that's becomes uh, alienating to to potential audience members mm. yeah and it shouldn't be that like you know you should you shouldn't have to have seen something else for something to make sense i mean it's cool mm. if you get an extra bit of detail out of it because you have read the book or whatever if there's a, but it shouldn't be something that is so dependent on you having done the the homework it, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense 
Yeah, although it's kind of hard not to admire the ambition of it. That was always the thing I thought was quite exciting about what was being discussed about the Dark Tower. Like, mm-hmm. for ages, they were saying, okay, there's going to be a film series that's being made, but there's also going to be a TV series that's going to be linking them all, and they're all going to be going on kind of concur- concurrently with the same cast. And you're like, okay, sure. <laughs> that sounds like something that's going to happen. But certainly it sounded like an, an ambitious thing. And they're also kind of talking about the same thing with Dune as well at the moment, which is wild to imagine that they think that not only is Dune going to have enough interest to sustain like a two-part science fiction epic, but it's also going to sustain a long-running TV series fo- focusing on fairly minor supporting characters. You know, like, I love I love the confidence. I'm not sure how well it's going to turn out. Um, but yeah, I think I think there is there is kind of a balance to be struck between how do we take advantage of the fact that people are more interested now perhaps in exploring every facet of the thing that they like and thinking that they're you know maybe there isn't a mass audience for a, a tv show and a and a film series of running concurrently but maybe there's enough of a core audience that you could sustain it and how much is it you know the the amount of effort you're expending on both these things at the same time is just going to end up hurting creatively uh the the, the two projects mm, yeah did you uh obviously we can move over from the oh we're upset about the the Disney monopoly to didn't the Mandalorian look quite good? Yeah, it did. I mean like that's the thing with all this stuff is like we 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 definitely are very vocal <laughs> and, and tiresome on our fears about you know what are Disney monopolies in general are bad. They're generally pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um as anyone who's played the game Monopoly will know. It doesn't end well for anyone. Mm. Usually you don't finish the game, yeah. um, in my experience. But, you know, they are, are genuinely not great for workers, very bad for workers, very bad for consumers, very bad, certainly in the creative industries, because you limit the number of options people have for telling their stories. You also ensure that kind of everything gets seen through the same filter because one corporation is overseeing it all. And that's certainly a concern I have with, like, some of the properties that Disney now own because they bought Fox, mm-hmm. like the Simpsons is not the trailblazer that it once was. And creatively is kind of been stagnating for a very long time. But one of the things that was always really good about the Simpsons and what made it very uh, distinctive was that when it was first commissioned by Fox, James L. Brooks got them to agree to giving basically complete control to the people who made the show. They couldn't really give them notes. They couldn't really have any creative influence on it. You know, the question of does that level of independence still exist for something like like The Simpsons? They, I, I believe they now own It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia because that's an FX production. Like, does that show have the free hand that it's had to tell some of the stories that they've been telling mm. um, under the Disney regime? Hopefully, but you never know because it's different different overlords now. But but also with something that is as vast as Disney, they are producing a lot of different things. And a lot of those things are things that I like and that you like. And we've talked about how much we like them over the course of this show. So that's the kind of the thing you have to do is like, in a grander sense, yeah, Disney, terrifying, horrible, bad, don't do it. But they also are producing lots of stuff that looks interesting to me. Uh, you know, it's the, the quandary. But yeah, the trailer for The Mandalorian looks very cool. Like the production values and the 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 use of just just the use of lighting in it is so good and looks so cinematic and genuinely continues the 
trend of the Star Wars movies looking very visually dynamic, which has been going on since the 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 Force Awakens, which is good to see. It's got a good cast. I'm just Werner Herzog is just it's just weird. Mm. It's so strange seeing him in Star Wars, and will never not be strange. I love um, I love that um, in the trailer we saw what I I believe will be the character played by well voiced by Nick Nolte so I'm going to get mm-hmm. this is the d- deep cut here you're going to see an Ugnaught which is like a little mm. piggy kind of character that yeah. was in Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. uh, riding a Blurg which is a giant two-headed uh, kind of two-footed bipedal creature um, yeah. voiced by Nick Nolte and that's not the weirdest <laughs> thing in the trailer the weirdest <laughs> thing in the trailer is that Werner Herzog is in it and he's being Werner Herzog yeah much as when he voiced that one character in Rick and Morty Mm. He was just constantly talking about penises. Yeah. It's like every time he's in something, you think it just kind of seems like a conversation he would have unprompted and not getting paid a huge amount of money. Like I'm fairly sure he would want to talk to someone about what a complicated profession bounty hunting is. Mm. Yeah. And like he would do it in that exact way. And like the cool thing was that when when me and Emily saw him at Dotfest, he was actually seemed quite excited about being in mm. Star Wars, uh, given that he hasn't seen any of the Star Wars movies, uh, as Fred reported. It's, it would be quite interesting to see how that turns out. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it looked cool. Uh, I've just sent you a, a picture in the Skype chat, Ed, of, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, uh, of the new poster for WandaVision. I don't know if you've seen it. I Yes, I saw that earlier on. It is, I, I like it a lot. That's very cool. Right? That's not what I thought that would be like. Real 50s sitcom sort of thing. Uh, Vision and Wanda slash uh, Scarlet Witch sat on a on a couch, just kind of laughing it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, very like that. I think they have described it as being very Dick Van Dyke show influenced, mm. uh, which is very kind of very intriguing to me. And it does maybe suggest that they are allowing the streaming services, or at least this one to maybe be a little freer in terms of their definition of what a Marvel property can be than the movies have been up till this point. Well, they kind of have, have, they have to be, don't they, surely? Yeah, to fill the time, to fill the number of episodes. And also, you, you know, spoilers, I guess, for uh, the last two Avengers movies. Vision is dead mm-hmm. at this point. So presumably this is going to be taking place in some interesting strange reality and again that kind of fits the the sitcom thing and maybe also ties into some of the stuff that they've been doing in the comics with vision recently there was a a much uh celebrated run of comics about vision where he created a whole like domestic suburban life for himself and and a fake family and everything which people said was uh, was really cool and really funny and explored some interesting themes so maybe they're taking a lesson from that and thinking if you're playing with characters who can just kind of create their own reality, then why not, you know, make it break away from the fairly restrictive house style of what the the Marvel movies have become and have kind of been from the beginning? Mm, yeah. I mean, we did point out that the vision is dead at this point. I, I still have got my fingers crossed for a Weekend at Bernie's style. <laughs> um, show with her trying to keep the pretense up to Catherine Hahn's noisy, uh, nosy neighbour that her husband is very much alive and well, even though he's a kind of a slowly rotting corpse. Yeah. Hmm, I've no, been to it. So I, think, I think that's what we all want. Um, just a quick, should we do a quick rundown of what 
just was announced or, or covered at, at D23 because it even when I try and kind of list it in one place, it seems like a ridiculous amount of content. So from, sure. yeah, so Star Wars wise, there was no news about the new movies, but there was uh, a sizzle reel for episode nine. And then also we had the announcement, the official announcement that Kenobi's happening, Cassian mm-hmm. Andor thing is happening. And they had a kind of a brief panel on that. We had the Mandalorian trailer and panel, and then they had a Clone Wars panel and a Resistance panel. That's that's, that's just the Star Wars bit. Then we had, yeah. uh, for Marvel, they had the Eternals out, didn't they, on stage? Yep, and, and talking about some of the stuff they're going to be doing yep. and showed off their costumes, mm-hmm. which looked uh, very uh, cosmic and silly, which is what you really would want. Yeah, and then... The thing about Marvel's announcements was there are a whole bunch of live action shows which were kind of super interesting sounding. Miss Marvel, um, mm-hmm. Moon Knight, which uh, my friends tell me they can't see how they're going to do that and it not be like R rated. Well, I don't right. know. I don't even know what it is. Do you know what it is? Uh, no, that's very much. There's some of those ones which are fairly or deeper cuts than maybe you would expect them to go for but at the same time you think they do have to fill a lot of space if they're Mm. launching a streaming service you can't uh run the risk of what apple tv are doing and releasing with some stuff that seems kind of promising but also you have like six shows Mm. like that's not really enough to get people to pony out the money yeah which is which is crazy because you know they've got so much of a back catalog especially with Mm. all the stuff they're acquiring Plus, that if you get Disney Plus, am I right in thinking in America you also get like ESPN and Hulu and stuff? You can get them bundled together. Yeah, there's, uh, okay. a, there's, there's like the basic price with just Disney Plus, which I think is seven dollars a month or seventy for the year, and then there's like a thirteen dollar bundle which gets you Hulu and ESPN Plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there was one more Marvel live action show uh, that was Falcon announced. And... No, 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 one, oh, no, no. one, the new one. But then also, obviously, WandaVision, Loki, Falcon and Winter Soldier. And then I think that might be a yeah, what if. Yeah. Um, and then a whole bunch Aren't of... Aren't they doing Devil Dinosaur is the uh, one of the other ones? Yeah, but I think that's animated. Oh, I think you're making this up now. That's not real, is it? <laughs> Devil Dinosaur. Um, yeah. Okay, sure. But then also, like, uh, so that's Marvel, I think. We covered that. Then you've got... Uh, Disney itself, like Disney Animation Studios, you got Frozen Two, and then I think they announced their newest film, which is something about a dragon. Am I right? Yes, Elsa and the Dragon, or something it's called, uh, and the Last Dragon. Ah, uh, cool. Okay, presumably uh, not related to the <laughs> the movie from the eighties. movie. Um, oh man, that's a bad movie. Uh, then they great sh- theme song though. Yeah, used to get cool. played at the uh, the box office at the showroom quite often. I love that. Then they've got the live-action Mulan. Mm-hmm. Um, that had something on it. Then they've got Onward. Is that yeah, Pixar the, or is that... the? That's the not a particularly promising-looking Disney uh, Pixar movie. Uh, then there's a Cruella de Vil thing with Emma Stone where she looks like Helena Bonham Carter. And it's set in the 70s and yeah. she's like a punk. Yeah. Uh, Jungle Cruise. Yes, which apparently... Is it's being directed by the guy who does all the Liam Neeson movies, uh, Jean Calaisera, Jean Calaisera, uh, who is very he's a very good, talented genre filmmaker. He's made a lot of very exciting and and fun movies. And the, apparently, they 
are billing it as very much in the vein of the African Queen, which is a fun uh, reference to take. Mm-hmm. And they showed dueling trailers for it, one focused on the Emily Blunt character and one focused on the Rocks character, which I think is a is a neat idea. Hmm. Black Panther 2, that was mm-hmm. officially announced, I believe. Not that there was any risk of it not happening. <laughs> no, but I think we we had no release date, had we, or... No, that's true. Official kind just, of word. in the ether, <laughs> a thing that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, this is what I wanted to get onto the subject of, there were quite a few things that were announced. Obviously, there's obviously loads of TV stuff, like Lizzie McGuire's coming back, uh, mm-hmm. High School Musical's yeah. coming back. Oh, was there something else, another big property that was coming back? I can't remember which one. But anyway, what, what I wanted to talk about is the film Noel. Yes. So <laughs> Noel, to me, feels like... Do you remember when John Lasseter took over at Disney? Mm-hmm. And the first thing he did was he shut down the straight-to-video um, yes. like department because he was like Aladdin 3 and you know Lion King 4 and all those kind of films. Like They're kind of cheap in the original. They're straight-to-video films. They're knockoffs. They don't have any original cast in them. They're diluting the brand. They're diluting the brand. Let's just close it down. And now I kind of feel a bit like... <laughs> We're kind of getting that back a bit because if you haven't heard the uh, the, the premise for the film Noel, um, mm-hmm. I think Anna Kendrick is safe to say I haven't really heard the premise, but I'm guessing that Anna, Anna Kendrick is like Santa Claus's daughter, and Santa Claus goes missing, and they've mm-hmm. got to kind of fill in for him, which I think is the exact plot of the Vince Vaughn movie from a few years ago, where he plays like 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 Father Christmas's brother or like cousin or something. And yeah, his brother to... Fred Claus. Fred Claus, that's it. And isn't that the plot of Arthur Christmas as well, the anime? <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a theme here. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it feels a little bit like Disney Plus is also a Cloverfield Paradox-style dumping ground <laughs> for the films that test audience have said, no, 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 this is this is pretty poor. Yeah, that goes, it's the feeling that seems to have arisen around their live-action Lady in the Tramp, which mm. is genuinely live-action in that it's real dogs, and they've done, they're doing kind of like digitally... Uh, manipulating the mouths to make them seem like they're talking uh, as opposed to the quote-unquote live-action Lion King. But yeah, that's one where it's ended up on Disney Plus seemingly because maybe they thought there's not really enough residual nostalgic desire to see the Lady and the Tramp story retold. But it is something that maybe people will watch with their kids to kind of keep them quiet of a Saturday. Mm. Did you see that thing going around Twitter where it was like describing Lady and the Tramp as the film <laughs> where two old Italian dudes try and make dogs fuck in an alley? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it was so good. Was so stupid. Anyway, the, the, I think the jewel in Disney's crown of all the things they announced at D23 is The What Were the World According to Jeff Goldblum, mm, uh, yes. which is what seems to be an, an odd trailer where... Jeff Goldblum seems to be cashing in all the, um, the kind of the adoration that is seemed to have burnt off of Bill Murray and Keanu Reeves, and is now at his door, where he seems to be just kind of taking that role of of playing Jeff Goldblum and just going around looking at things that he's interested in. Like, he, I think in the trailer he tattoos someone, um, yeah. he does some dancing, he becomes a butcher for a little bit. <laughs> it was kind of odd, but I think you know. I'm not sure who that's for, but I think people will be mm. into it. Yeah, it definitely seems to be fitting into because Disney also own Nat Geo mm-hmm. as a result of the the Fox purchase, and it seems to be 
in the vein of kind of the light, fluffy Nat Geo stuff of, you know, kind of people going out and exploring the world and doing it with Jeff Goldblum, who does seem to be a man who's genuinely very interested in things and, you know, is a, is a delightful presence. Um, I'm a little disappointed that he's not playing Chef Goldblum, his character from Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. Um, <laughs> and... But but you know that small disappointment aside, uh, I kind I kind of like the idea of it, and I mainly like how kind of youth hosteling with Chris Eubanks <laughs> it feels of a real kind of like someone went into a pitch meeting with just a bunch of cue cards and sometimes just phrases on the on it that with no concept and in the glut of content and the desire to put as much stuff on Disney Plus as possible, uh, they all they said yes to all of them. <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that third Marvel show was She-Hulk. That's right, yes, uh, which I, I think could be quite cool and also seemed to really annoy people who uh, don't know anything about comics. Mm. Um, I think it was Pablo Hidalgo who shared it. Uh, there was just like Instagram comics being like, uh, comments of people being like, why has everything got to be a woman? What was wrong with Hulk being a man? Which is kind of like, <laughs> fuck's sake. <laughs> She's yeah. been a character in the comics for 30 years. Mm. This is not a new thing. Yeah. And she's also a bitch-ass lawyer, man. She's, you know... Yes. No That's one... the thing I, I'm i quite excited about it, particularly if, like, you know, the WandaVision with the the, the Dick Van Dyke thing. If it's just, like, Ali McBeal with <laughs> She-Hulk, I'm yeah. all in. If someone just rages out, when they can get Robert Downey Jr. to be in it, you know. Yeah, exactly. It works perfectly. Get dancing. They've got the rights for that... Uh, Blue Swede song because it's in Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. It's all how it's all becoming clear why they bought all these things. This is the what they was all building towards. Mm, yeah, uh, but yeah, it, it's it's it certainly sounds like um, interesting. Also, isn't there Disney's new? They sh- uh, uh, sorry, uh, didn't Pixar also show off their movie Soul? Yeah, like, which is their their new one about souls <laughs> and uh, in people and uh, all set in New Orleans and all to do with jazz, which. Uh, sounds weird and nebulous as far as concepts go, but also is uh, maybe a little more promising than Onward seems, in that it seems to be going into, like Inside Out, which I liked a great deal, maybe trying to do something a little more abstract. Mm -hmm. Or Coco, which obviously was a movie that uh, took a lot of risks and and also, you know, kind of very much went into the the ethereal and the otherworldly. Mm, it is would be nice to see Pixar taking a few more risks again after the the kind of relative pedestrian entries into their canon of the Toy Story 4 and Incredibles 2, Coco and Inside Out have been two of their better films after what would be fair to say a bit of a slump. Yeah, or of them kind of doing stuff that feels that is that is fine, mm-hmm. like <laughs> it's fine. Like yeah, fine. It's fine. But like Finding Dory is is like a fun movie, but it's you know kind of feels like safe for them to return to that Monsters University as well. Although they also talked about how they're doing a Monsters uh, Inc. spin off series called Monsters at Work, which I think has been mooted for a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that that it's nice to see them maybe pursuing more original concepts in the years ahead, even if something like Onward doesn't necessarily feel that exciting, at least based on what they've shown so far. They're also doing a series of shorts with Tony Hale as Forky uh, called yes. Ask Forky. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which should be fun. I hope, I, hope should be an, I hope he should be in an Agony Aunt column, <laughs> which is like people ringing in with really serious questions and then him having some kind of weird existential freak out. 
yeah, we haven't talked really about Toy Story 4, but I, I loved all the stuff they did with Forky so much. Uh, if the series is just him going bo 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 over and over again, or refusing to walk and trying to get Woody to carry him, I'm all for it. I think that I thought it was funny that I think someone on Twitter said that like in the space of four movies, like Toy Story One is, hey, isn't it fun what your toys get up to when the doors are closed? And the last one is like, you know, objects like having deep crises and screaming into a void of whether they're real or not. <laughs> just like, wow, okay. Yeah, the fourth one, the, the thing that's good about the fourth one is it does just, it's kind of weird and strange, like the, the idea of like, oh, anything can be alive. What? <laughs> <laughs> anything can be given uh, given existence if you love it enough. Great. Mm. <laughs> yeah, were there any other projects that kind of really stood out? Also, like one of the things as well, that they showed a montage, I think, of stuff that they just owned now. They included a clip from Bend It Like Beckham, which I think they own because it's a Fox Searchlight production. And presumably that just means it's going to be on the streaming service because it's an older movie they own the rights to, which is probably PG-13. But I remember seeing that and thinking, that's kind of weird that they would highlight that. But I guess it's it's also a case of them just owning so much stuff. <laughs> that, like the, some, some odder things are going to creep in. Mm, I reckon some of that stuff they don't even own. They just did it, and the, the, <laughs> no one, assume. no one's going to challenge them. Yeah, uh, it's like uh, I was listening to a podcast this week where they talked about how Universal, I think, tried to sue Nintendo over Donkey Kong because they were like, "You can't do that. It's just King Kong," and they just assumed they owned King Kong, but then it turned out they actually didn't, <laughs> and that they couldn't sue them. So Nintendo had like a very brief period of time in which they're able to copyright Donkey Kong as a thing that they could own and not get sued into oblivion by Universal. But I always like the the I don't like it because corporations shouldn't exist and they should own as many things as they do if they do exist. But I do find it funny when corporations are just so big it's like, yeah, we probably own that, right? <laughs> that's that's something we probably have. Yeah, yeah. That's got lost in the filing cabinet somewhere. Mm, yeah, that's a scary thought that someone's entire oeuvre could just be accidentally found by an office temp somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of, that's kind of what happened with Romero's stuff, isn't it? Or at least with Night of the Living Dead, where they never actually copyrighted it, so it's been public domain basically since it came out, mm. which is why there's so there were so many shitty transfers of it during the the kind of the boom of VHS and DVD. Mm. Plus they never copyrighted it because it was funded by the mafia. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, famously um, bankrolled by some pretty nasty characters um, mm. who he, they, they promised him the cash up front, but none of those, uh, none of that small print was read. And yeah, it was a <laughs> smash and grab job. And uh, as a result, you can own the colorized version for very little. Hmm. And you could remake it as many times as you, <laughs> as you wanted to, yeah. Which is kind of what he's been doing the rest of his career. Yeah. R.I.P. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> George Romero. So yeah, so like, what are we saying at the end end of all of this? Disney are too big and own too many things, but some of those things are nice. Or mm. they look like they could be good. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm psyched for Nick Naughty and Star Wars. Yeah, finally. And um, Nick Naughty, oh. Werner Herzog and Bill Burr in the same Star Wars project is an odd trio. Yeah, although now it does kind of put a strange light on that old Patton Oswalt bit where he used to act out Nick Nolte's uh, 
audition to be Han Solo back in the days where he was kind of the younger up and comer who could have been a Han Solo as opposed to uh, a pigman. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, a midget pigman. Yeah, that's 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 the arc of a Hollywood career for you. It is, and in the meantime, a DUI arrest uh, when he was driving under the influence of his own rehypnol that he'd made at home. <laughs> that's that's Nick Naughty, everyone. Also in uh, Time Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, nineteen ninety. Just just putting that out, uh, and still a brilliant performer. Oh yeah, he's still a great actor. If anyone is, if you've ever seen the um, Affliction, I have. I love that. Movie. Oh, what a fucking film that is. The movie yeah. that really sells you on how bad a toothache can be. Mm, yeah, home dentistry. Don't do it. No. So we end this episode, we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about each of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, while we're talking about Disney, um, I'm going to recommend a uh, a board game, um, mm. uh, which I'm known to like. Yeah, it's a kind of relatively new game called Villainous, which is a uh, game published by Disney and uh, don't let it like kind of licensed properties in board games scare you the way that they do in video games because <laughs> um, sometimes they're good. Uh, and Villainous is a very good example of that. It's an asymmetric card game. Asymmetric meaning that everyone who's playing is playing by a different set of rules. You are playing a villain from the Disney movies and you have your own goals and your own kind of schemes you're trying to enact and the heroes from those movies are trying to stop you. And it's a really fun game. It's the thematic um, way it works is very clever. Uh, For instance, if you're uh, King John from Robin Hood, who I was when I I played it the other day, um, your kind of goal is to amass as much money, but you're you're kind of useless in many other ways. And you have to rely on kind of henchmen and stuff to kind of get your work done. If you're Ursula, you have to kind of um, do kind of some kind of weird shenanigans and Jafar steals things. And yeah, it's a very cool game um and i was kind of thinking about what i could recommend that was related to disney but not actually a disney film or anything and that's what i came up with it's a really good game um and it was kind of released earlier this year and everyone was like oh god a disney game and it turned out to be really pretty good um and i recommend it they just brought out an expansion for it where you can be scar and the villain from the emperor's new groove who i can't remember the name of but i always thought that was a weird movie that was really good that no one ever talks about and yeah i'd recommend that game villainous by disney excellent game Cool. I'm going to recommend a thing that is technically owned by Disney. Uh, we were talking about... Is it this podcast? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, they must not hear this. No, I'm going to recommend a show that airs on the FX network in uh, the US called What We Do in the Shadows. It's the TV adaptation slash continuation of the Taika Waititi film from a few years ago, which follows a quartet of vampires who live in Staten Island, New York, played by uh, Kay Van Novak, who people probably best know from Four Lions and Phone Jacker, uh, Natasha Dimitriou, uh, 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 Matt Berry, and an actor called Mark Prolsk, I think, who um, I wasn't that familiar with, um, but I, I think was also was in The Office for several seasons. Um, he played a character called Nate in The Office, mm. I think bold guy anyway he's uh kind of the standout for me just because i wasn't familiar with him he plays a character called uh colin who is an energy vampire someone who is out able to go out in the sunshine and just kind of starts incredibly boring conversations with people until they lose the will to live he's very very funny um but yeah it's, it's a really really funny show done in the same style as the film of this kind of like mockumentary thing they play with the fact that the characters are being filmed a little more often than the 
the the film version did and it's just it's just really really funny it has this great absurd sense of humor to it there's this underlying threat to it all which is that at the start of the show they discover that a character called the baron who is this great powerful vampire many many years old who sired most of them played by uh, doug jones uh under makeup if you can believe it no, um I can't. <laughs> uh, is coming to town and wants to see their progress in conquering america and all they've been doing is kind of you know living their lives in in staten island and uh, that kind of drives much of the the series is their attempts to hide their complete failure to conquer the new world from him um but mainly it's just about the interactions between these characters who all largely hate each other but you know can come together if needed and uh it's got a lot of refund really guest stars uh guest uh nick kroll shows up as kind of an outsized weirdo if you can believe it mm. um Kristen Shaw turns up as uh, someone who shouts a lot. Um, <laughs> very much playing to type and playing it very well. Uh, and yeah, it, it's it's just really, really funny. If you've seen the movie and are worried that maybe a lot of that wit and humour and invention would get watered down in moving it to television, it's all pretty much still there. Uh, the cast are great. The writing's very strong and solid. And it's just loaded with incredibly good gags. And it's fun, particularly... If, like me, you're someone who really loved the, the movie and you've seen it a bunch of times. It's fun seeing them take the basic ideas explored in that. You know, they have a bit of a rivalry with werewolves. There's an episode where they go for a night on the town and really kind of spinning those out and exploring them in new ways. So, yes, if you can watch that. I think it's aired in the UK by this point. I think it aired yeah, on it's, BBC, all on, it's all on iPlayer now. Nice. Yes, if, if so get on it. It's also all on Hulu over here now, which is how I, I watched it this week. And it is very, very good. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, Raters, leave us a review and recommend us to your friends. The best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.